Mr. Derek Vienhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yeah, Deke. People who are listening to this podcast who don't know you and don't know what you do, why don't you tell them a little bit about who you are, your uh, studies in Montreal, and your your, your path in, uh, in your educational career? Sure. So, uh, as you said, I live in Montreal now. I've lived in Montreal for the past three years or so, but I grew up, I was born and raised in the Niagara region, in St. Catharines, so that's how you and I met. We were uh, childhood buddies growing up. I went to Barack in St. Catharines, did my first degree there, then I moved to Guelph and did my master's at the University of Guelph, and now I'm at McGill in Montreal. Uh, my last two degrees, uh, my master's and my PhD, which I'm currently doing, are in epidemiology, which is, uh, we're going to get a lot into that, but it's not, uh, it's not related to skin. A lot of people think epidemiology <laughs> yeah. is related to dermatology. Because the epi, epidermis, dermatology, it's related to skin, but it's not at all related to skin. Um, it's related to essentially how, what, are the, what, are, what causes disease, what causes poor health in people, and then what are the consequences of having certain diseases. And then a lot of it is about, as we'll talk about, is how do you, how do you stop the spread of diseases or how do you reduce diseases in populations so that you can improve the health of populations. So... Uh, yeah, I'm doing my PhD right now, and broadly speaking, it's in the area of epidemiology. Okay, yeah, and your your PhD is uh, on co-infected HIV and um, hepatitis C. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So it's interesting because the word epidemiology, if I were to, uh, because it, the, the term is foreign, it seems confusing. But if you think of like biology as a word, so biology has a lot of subfields within it like if you're a biologist you could specialize in like molecular biology or ecology so like um or cell physiology or there's a bunch of specific streams within the term biology and a biologist is really one particular type of biologist so within epidemiology there are as a as a broad umbrella term which is focusing on disease and health and populations of people it's about you know studying things on the population level my particular research project uh, within my PhD, which I have to complete in order to get the PhD, uh, relates to um, Canadian people who are living with both HIV. So they're infected with HIV, which is a chronic viral illness. HIV cannot be cured. So once you are infected with HIV, uh, the only course of action is to take lifelong treatment. And then in addition to studying people who have HIV, everybody who I study is also infected with hepatitis C virus. So HIV, um, it's, it's transferred through contaminated blood. So the only way to get infected with HIV is to be exposed. And hepatitis C virus, which is another uh, different virus that has different health consequences, is also transferred uh, through a similar mechanism. So it's primarily transferred through contaminated blood. So um, if somebody engages in a behavior that exposes them to contaminated blood, uh, which is often it's often injection drug use. Then it, there's the potential that, uh, in addition to being infected with HIV, they'll also get infected uh, with hepatitis C virus. So that they're living with two viruses at the same time. Okay. And what are some of the like uh, implications of the co-infection, or like things you've learned along the way that 
that are interesting or that stand out about people who, like like you said, um, the 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 intravenous drug use is one thing. Is that the like the main thing that the main way that they get infected with both things, or is there other ways? Exactly. So. The main reason people are interested in, so, so hepatitis C, for people who don't know, hepatitis C is, hepatitis relates to the liver. So hepatitis C essentially damages your liver over time. So HIV affects your immune system. It makes you immunocompromised. And then hepatitis C affects your liver. So the reason it's interesting to study this subset of people is that taking medications themselves, and this may be a little difficult to follow, but taking if you take medications uh, you take an aspirin, your liver, in addition to other organs, processes that medication and metabolizes it. And your liver can, over time, if you take a lot of medication, could experience toxicity related to, not to aspirin, but to other uh, other medications. So right. if you're infected with HIV and you're taking antiretrovirals for the rest of your life, you have to take medication for the rest of your life, yeah. that could affect your liver. But if you're also infected with hepatitis C virus, yeah. which is a virus that affects your liver as well, it's kind of like a double whammy. So people, public health is interested in knowing, okay, if somebody has to take medication for the rest of their life because they're infected with HIV and they also are infected with a second virus that affects their liver, how concerned should we be about their liver? And the liver is an organ you can't live without uh, and it's treatments related, you know, Illnesses related to your liver are hard to treat. They're costly to treat. So it's become kind of this priority subgroup of people. So you have the HIV-infected population in Canada, mm-hmm. um, which say, I don't know the updated numbers, say there's 70,000 people in Canada that are infected with HIV. About 10% of, about 10,000 of those are infected with HIV and Hep C. And if those people are at a particularly high risk for liver-related Damage because of their uh, HIV medications and because of their hepatitis C, there's a there's been a, a push or a priority to try to understand the interplay between these two viruses, and a big part of understanding the interplay between having both viruses is understanding how those people were infected with both viruses to begin with. Right. It's kind of like how somebody got, you know, it's there's it's one thing to study somebody who has. A particular type of cancer and you identify this person in a, in a hospital or a clinic and they have this type of cancer the the question obviously becomes how how do we study how, how do they get there to begin with how did they get skin cancer how did they get brain cancer how did they get end-stage liver disease how did they get co-infected and that goes back to things like uh, injection drug use which is as you as you mentioned that's the primary driver or the primary cause of being co-infected, it's it's using uh, dirty needles yeah. and then getting uh, getting infected with both viruses. So mm-hmm. that that is the primary driver. Okay, so when epidemiologists discover uh, and test a, a number of theories and statistical data to find out that information, what do they do? They then bring it to a government body and tell them what they found, and then that from there a government body will do some initiative to like take care of the intravenous drug use for example is there a direct connection like that or is it more of just presenting data and then you guys do whatever you want with it no it's a good it's that's like a i think even people who work who are researchers for their entire 
their lives. So they you know, they get PhDs in epidemiology, say I get a PhD and I go on to study HIV hep C co-infection for the rest of my life. And, and I'm an old man and I wanted to affect change. I wanted to do studies and publish information that went on to be read by somebody who's in a position of power to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And then say that's the government. Then the government says, okay, we've read all the studies out of you know this research group or out of these, these this group of people and we see what their what their studies are telling us and then we're going to allocate x percentage of our budget towards trying to reduce something or trying to manipulate or intervene upon something in the population in order to reduce some negative outcomes so you said it exactly. So when the, say you want to reduce, you know that being HIV, hep C co-infected is bad. The research shows that. So the government wants to know, okay, how do we reduce people being co-infected with HIV and hep C? It, it, the primary driver, as identified by many scientific studies, is the injection drug use. We need to reduce the injection drug use. So that's the kind of the what you the ideal situation of what you want to happen. But broadly speaking, taking a step back, the way science is produced is that you do a study and in any field this is in any this is pretty much any field this is generalizable to epidemiology to biology to chemistry to physics to en- engineering related disciplines so you collect data and then in epidemiology you do that in a particular way we're trying to collect data on people and then you you have a certain sample size of data you have enough data and then you process that data in such a way that you can summarize it and try to take some sort of message away from it, have some sort of learning learning opportunity from that data. So once you do that though, you say, okay, I, I've collected data, I've analyzed the data, now I wanna put I want to put the, my findings out into the world. And the way the academic and the research sphere works is that you have to publish your particular study that used your data in a scientific journal. So these journals exist. Um, they're kind of like mini companies in a way. People, these journals exist and they have like an editor and the editor is usually like a, somebody with a PhD or a, a medical degree who's an expert in a field. Mm-hmm. And you go to that journal and you submit, you have like a 10, 15 page write-up and you submit your write-up and it describes the rationale for why you did the study. It describes the methods you used. It describes the results of the study. And then it has a section for you to discuss the potential implications of doing that study. So the goal is to publish, and then this gets at your question. Once you do your work, you give it to a journal, the journal reviews it. So the way science works is it's a peer-reviewed based discipline. So if I do a study and I think the study is well done, I bring it to a journal, and then say two to four other people who work in my area, somewhere around the world, they get sent my paper, my study, and then those people anonymously read it and review it, and they comment on it. And then they tell the journal, who I want to publish with, should Taylor be able to publish his study in this journal? Is it, you know, is it well done? Does the data, uh, does he have enough data to support the analysis he did? And does his analysis support his conclusions? And if I reach all those checkpoints, my paper eventually gets published through the journal, which are now digital. In the past, it used to be like an actual paper journal that would get printed and then mailed out to researchers every month or something. Now it's all PDFs and you find them online. Mm-hmm. And that happens. And then once it's out there, though, once I publish my paper in a journal, it's it becomes unclear as to how that information is used. So right. 
it's it's not always I that, that I you always write in your paper you know this this what I found means this and I hope that you know if 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 you could prioritize this group of people if you could reduce the injection drug use you can reduce the you can reduce the co-infection you can reduce the healthcare costs and you try to you know tell the story but whether some politician or some policymaker goes to a politician and says you know you should make you know allocate this much money from the provincial healthcare budget to this um, there's a lot of steps that happen in there and a lot of different influences and the science itself is not always the what the science says may not be what the politician decides based on a, a number of factors right I mean you would assume that the politicians have um, you know top advisors and you know scientific advisors and whatnot and like you would assume if certain politicians um, goal was say uh economic relief or just the general like what's the like the well-being of a society can clearly contributes to uh less healthcare costs which is like one of the major things that plagues north america and i get i don't know about europe but like it, that's like one of the big discussions right how much healthcare costs and and how effective is it like it's the it seems like that should be a number one priority and it seems like a lot of politicians these days don't have scientific background and they maybe don't have like i don't know i don't know what the problem is it seems like there's many problems there i don't know no it's a it's a it's a good question in that you would think because there's there's two parts of it the one thing that's interesting in talking about the economics and healthcare costs is that that actually you know in my naive experience i haven't i'm only a student i haven't went on to really try to get my work you know, digested or implemented by politicians. But the idea is, is usually money speaks to politicians. So yeah. as you mentioned, healthcare costs, if they're not the most, ex- if they're not taking, so say you have a budget, if healthcare costs aren't taking up the, the largest proportion of a country's budget now, a lot of people project that in the next X number of years with an aging population and, and so on that, Countries will spend more on healthcare than anything else in terms right. of their budget. That would be the most expensive thing. So the logical, the logical question is, how do we reduce healthcare costs? Mm-hmm. So there are, sometimes there are obvious. So say we'll stick to the the injection drug use and the co-infection. We know co-infection is bad. Injection drug use causes co-infection. Injection drug use causes a lot of other health problems. And if you're constantly spending healthcare, uh, using healthcare costs on people who are recurrent injection drug users because they're getting sick, the idea would be to reduce the injection drug use. Yeah. So in the news lately, um, I don't know if it's in the widespread news, but there's, there's if you've heard of things called safe injection sites. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, so safe injection sites, they have them in, in, in British Columbia so or yeah. in Vancouver. So there's a, there's a neighborhood in Vancouver, uh, the downtown east side, which is um, according to some statistics, is like the most uh, impoverished area in Canada. So it has like the lowest income in in, in that postal code. It's like the poorest neighborhood yeah. in Canada. So they have a lot of and associated with low income and low education is are things like substance abuse and one of those substances could be injectable drugs. So in that area, they've identified that they're spending a lot of money. Um, the British Columbia government saying we're spending too much money on the consequences of substance abuse, whether it be, um, you know, liver, liver damage on people who are injecting drugs or alcohol abuse and so on. So they're saying, okay, we have to s- reduce the costs associated with substance abuse. So we need to reduce the substance abuse. And in the context of injection drug use, they've realized that 
safe injection sites um, are a essentially a building where somebody if they can go in they bring their own drugs and they can get clean needles they can have you know they can have uh be in an environment where like overdose doesn't happen because they're being monitored and things like that so they have these facilities you can go in and inject your own drugs in a in a uh an environment that's where they're being watched over essentially there's no legal repercussions like the cops can't stand outside and bust you afterwards they're kind of like little uh protected areas so the question is if and then so they've done research so you can you can tell a politician safe injection sites you should consider those because you can reduce healthcare costs if you have safe injection sites because they 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 reduce downstream effects of substance abuse but people will say so that say that's been demonstrated and and there has been studies out of bc and other places where they have these sites that you can reduce healthcare costs by having safe injection sites so a politician you go to a politician you can say in Toronto, say, and they'll say, okay, let's reduce healthcare costs in the Toronto area. Put a bunch of safe injection sites in downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. That it, safe injection sites are a pretty extreme example because a politician they'll stay far away from the idea of implementing safe injection sites. Like if you, and the argument they use is, say, it'll save healthcare costs and it'll reduce drug users in the park and it'll have people go to a, you know, they'll congregate to a certain place. Nobody wants to have a safe injection site in their neighborhood. Right. Because it's always like, well, you can, you can, we believe in safe injection sites, but we don't want them in our, in yeah. our backyard because yeah. they, they say it's like a honeypot effect. Like people will, all the, all the drug users will congregate around this building kind of like there's like a Salvation Army somewhere and you see them lined up. Right. So they say, we know there's scientific evidence that will reduce healthcare costs, and you know, hypothetically, those costs could be used for more daycares, for road repair, for all these other things that general the general population would like. Mm-hmm. But then the general population will say, "Yeah, that all makes sense. The evidence is there, but we just don't want that site in our in our backyard, or we don't want it." Or a politician of a certain borough of a city will say, "Yeah, but I don't want to." I don't want to not get reelected because one of my campaign points is that I want to introduce safe injection sites. Right. Even though the evidence, the scientific evidence says to do it, he won't get reelected because people in that neighborhood won't vote for him because they don't yeah. want to have safe injection sites in their neighborhood. So that's where there's a disconnect. Right. And that is just the current state of that's just politics, right? That's just the hinder, hindrance that politics inadvertently causes in the world just by its nature like yeah exactly i would agree with that for sure yeah. like they're not try- they're not you know they don't want to see more problems caused or to you know they might want the best solution as a politician in their heart and mind but they can't sort of because of their political situation yeah, yeah I, I, you're right i think I think it, I have like a very micro view of like I'm thinking of epidemiology and public health. But I think broadly speaking, there are a lot of issues that politicians are, are faced with. And there's like data from economics or from, you know, urban planning or from health or from whatever yeah. that says to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and even in their hearts, they may believe it, but they, they can't do it because – for, for a variety of reasons, whether they're logical reasons they can't do it, maybe maybe the evidence isn't actually as strong as people think, or maybe right. it is as strong, but they don't have the budget to in- introduce safe injection sites anyway, so that's why they can't do it. There are, mm-hmm. there may be some ways, there are some reasons that are more defendable and logic logical, and then there's others that maybe it is just, you know, it's just, it's just politics. Yeah, and uh, 
speaking about the just on the safe injection sites, like how long have they been uh, in Vancouver for? And is that the only place that they are in Canada? So let's see. So the one in Vancouver is called Insight. So it's uh, I'll just I don't know offhand. So the Wikipedia. So they had forty seven hundred chronic drug users in two thousand. So it's been a, it's, it was founded officially founded and supported and allowed to be there by you know by all the authorities in 2003 it says okay and and i don't know i know that recently and it was in the news that toronto is building and implementing safe injection sites okay i don't know if they're there yet i know it took a long time for they were shot down time and time again Mm -hmm. but uh they are coming to toronto and i know there's been talks about them in montreal but they haven't happened uh but I think in the future you're going to see you're going to see more and more of them. Yeah, it's like this phenomenon where, where in certain countries or certain geographic uh, locations, some some policy works and is very effective. Like in Portugal, how all drugs are legalized and it's actually like reduced drug use has actually gone down. Exactly. Yeah. And then people say, "Oh, well, bring it over here and we'll be great." But it, you can't always just like wave a magic wand to just apply some thing that's worked somewhere else and expect it to work the same way oh that's a, and that's that's really what a lot of what science is about generalizability of experience so in, in in portugal they will have studied and they will have like you just said they will have found that by legalizing drugs or by you know changing different structures political structures and and drug related laws that Less people use drugs, less people have overdoses, less people are hospitalized for drug-related abuse. They find all these positive things. But those studies, the way they do that is they, they study people in that particular area, and their study sample is based on the experience and the context there. And, to, and it's very known in science that you cannot take a study that was done in another country that may have different healthcare structures, different political systems, and then apply the findings from that study or the, the experience of, a, of people in another place to, the, to what will happen in Canada right. or in North America. So that's, that's like generalizability and whether, you know, whether a study sample or an analytical sample and the results that, re, that come from analyzing that data are generalizable to other places. Right, and that's not to say that once in a while – uh, some some municipality might adopt something that's worked somewhere else and actually have it work just sort of by happenstance. Like it might not be the exact correct method, but they just try it and it works. I, I think that happens. I think that it's it's almost uh, a lot of what when you're an epidemiologist or you're training to be an epidemiologist. What you're learning is you're learning how to do how to do research yourself, but you're also learning a lot about how to digest and understand other people's research. And part of that is if I read a paper, if I give you a paper that was done in St. Catharines and it was looking at whether water fluoridation in St. Catharines reduced cavities of people that lived in St. Catharines, you would look at the characteristics of what what is what are the people that live in St. Catharines like? What is the average socioeconomic status? What is what is the distribution the age distribution in the population? What what is what is St. Catharines as a city? What type of people and what, what does the sample of St. Catharines residents represent? And if that is, if, if as a judgment call, if that feels quite similar to people who live in Welland, you'd probably say, yeah, maybe we can implement water fluoridation in Welland based off the findings in St. Catharines. Because people in Welland and the experience and the context of 
Welland is similar to St. Catharines. And yeah, you take what you learned in St. Catharines and then you apply, you generalize that to Welland. But maybe you wouldn't generalize it to a small municipality in China because there's just so many things that are different about St. Catharines in this small place in China that you wouldn't assume that the findings from that study would apply there. Right. And just to be clear, they haven't fluoridated, they haven't fluoridated uh, Niagara Regis of Water since 1999. Random fact. Oh, that's interesting. And you'd wonder, and it, the, that leads to the question of like, why have they done or not done that? Yeah. The you evidence know. says, well, I guess I don't actually, I don't want to speak on it because I don't, I, water fluoridation, so how do, so let's, let's just take this down an interesting path. So how do you know whether water fluoridation works? How do you, how would you go about answering that question? Do you have any idea if somebody came to you, if, if, if the Niagara Regional Public Health Department had to go to the Niagara Regional City Council and tell them whether to fluoridate or not fluoridate the water, what would they, what type of evidence would they bring to that, to that government? Yeah, so that's a question I don't really know the answer to. So, so I think, what would be the answer? So this is really where epidemiological research plays a huge role in public health because public health is, is – to differentiate when people say, okay, public health and then health care. So public health is, is – there's the Public Health Agency of Canada in Canada. So that's like the federal organization that – runs and decides what public public health interventions happen in Canada. So you have the Public Health Agency of Canada, and then you think of, okay, so if you're sick, you don't go to the public health agency and say, treat my sickness. You go to, the, you go to your family physician or you go to the hospital. Yeah. So healthcare is, if you think of healthcare as being very individualized, it's kind of your direct relationship with your, your family doctor or you go to a walk-in clinic, that's that's more healthcare. That's not really public health. That's one-on-one. I'm sitting down. I need this prescription for my ear infection or whatever. That's healthcare. Mm-hmm. Public health are is things like water fluoridation or um, bicycle helmet laws or um, restricting the lead levels in in water. I'm using a lot of water examples. Totally. Or, yep. All those things that will affect groups of people. So if you want to go, if you want to advocate for having water fluoridation or not having water fluoridation, you need to do, you have to study that issue in your context. So you need to study. So the reason you want to fluoridate water is to reduce like dental caries or cavities. Dental, you want to improve dental health, teeth health. So if that's what you want to study, that's the outcome. You're concerned about the health, the, whether people's teeth are in good condition or not, you believe that the the exposure the the exposure that could affect that outcome the the variable that could affect dental health is water fluoridation. You have to do a study where you look at where you study the relationship between water fluoridation and that outcome. And if you want to advocate for water fluoridation, you would you would expect that water fluoridation reduces the occurrence of dental caries or of cavities yeah okay here's so here's an interesting thing i'm going to read a little little bit of this little article here about uh hamilton <laughs> uh the florida this is from 2013 i believe 
Uh, the fluoridation of Hamilton's drinking water is a polarizing topic, and at least one city councillor wants to put the issue to referendum next fall. Brad Clark plans to introduce a motion this month asking for a referendum during next year's election. The referendum would ask Hamiltonians if they're in favor of the continuation, uh, continuing fluoridation of the city's public water supply. So it's really interesting that municipalities put referendums up for something that they basically, like, how do, why are they, why is the public experts, it's like any referendum, it's like that uh, public, that, that people think it's the truest form of democracy, but really the, the, the public at large is generally, like, grossly misinformed, for the most part, and, you know, like. Yeah, it's like, why, like, who, like, what information are they basing the decision on to vote one way or another youtube you know, it, wikipedia youtube and 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 there's like i guess you could describe like a hierarchy of evidence and maybe youtube well i guess it depends who's talking in the youtube video or whatever or who what information is being presented but yeah. it's uh, the, the the difficulty i find is that for me and for fellow students of mine and for people who have been epidemiologists for 20 years or they're they're medical doctors it's hard for us to understand whether a scientific study, like if I sit down and read a study on water fluoridation, it's difficult for me. It's well, it's all relative. It's difficult for if I find it difficult to assess whether the study is of high or low quality and whether I should believe the study or not. So this is a study that's already been published. It's already been peer reviewed. It's already like the stamp of approval. It's a scientific study and. It's, you know, like you see in the media, like science, you know, this study says like, and you would believe it like it's cold, hard facts. That is what it already is. It's a study. But it's hard for me as somebody who's been studying this for and for the past five years and I'm going to study for the rest of my life to yeah. understand whether that's high or low quality evidence. So if you were to bring me into that room and have me vote on what and it's this referendum on whether to fluoridate or not fluoridate water, yeah. the way I would make the decision is I would go to the uh, the primary literature, so the actual scientific paper on the PubMed, Public uh, Library of uh, Medical Science database, I would find the original studies that were based on the Niagara region context or whatever, Hamilton context, and I would read those and I would analytically break them down and see if they did their study in a proper way. Even for me, that's difficult. So I, I yeah. it's hard. it's hard for me to believe... But this is just the way the world works, and I'm not blaming the people who get picked to to answer to answer to this referendum. But it's you wonder what is driving their decision to fluoridate or not, because it's yeah. probably not them going to the primary literature and analyzing and breaking down the evidence. No, it's and generally making a yeah. decision. It's their gut feeling, I guess. Right in many cases, and here's another little interesting sentence in the article: the city's board of health debated uh, again last May, asking. Health Canada for proof that fluoridated water is safe. It also asked Ontario for proof of toxicology studies on the fluoride used in Hamilton water. Neither of these reports have materialized. In fact, they didn't write back at all. <laughs> because yeah. it's a waste of their time, I guess? Or, or they're like, they, why would they not? I don't know. Well, so a report, let's, to define a report, it would be like a synthesis and a, a synthesis and a, a an evaluation of the primary literature. So somebody would get hired at Health Canada, maybe it's like a, even like a summer student that's like getting a degree in public health to go in. Well, I'm not going to 
I don't mean in the sense that it'd be like a poor report, but no, they have yeah, somebody. Yeah. They have somebody there who's doing the grunt work, who's going in and finding on the finding all the relevant literature, summarizing it, put saying you know these three studies kind of say it's safe. These three, these two studies say they're not sure. This study says it's not safe. And to do that takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of expertise. So if there's all and and whether a it's almost like a, a budget within a budget. It's like how do they decide whether to respond to these people uh, requesting this report, especially if those who work within Health Canada have already read the, the bits and pieces. They've already read the individual literature without summarizing it into one report. They already kind of they've already maybe they're experts themselves or they have people that work on water fluoridation in Health Canada. And like that's researchers individual opinion based off their evidence and, and their understanding of the current knowledge base is that it's safe. Maybe that doesn't get pushed down the agenda to have that whole report written up. Maybe there's probably like a thousand reasons why they wouldn't or they would have a report written. Mm-hmm. But uh, how, yeah, how this decision gets made related to – because water fluoridation, why, why do you think if you were to ask your parents or, or your friends – why do you think some people wouldn't want water fluoridation? What do you think they would say? Um, well, I know some people would say, uh, I don't know. They would say it's bad for you, or they would. Some some conspiracy theorists would say something about the pineal gland and your third eye and some bullshit like that. <laughs> um, some people would say. I don't really know. I I I know online. The only thing I really read about was in India. There was actually like widespread. I forget what the word is. Fluorosis or fluoridosis, some sort of condition where the teeth actually like become like brown and fall out because they put way too much. Okay. Something like that. So, but I, maybe it's a concern over the level. And I think, and I think the reason I think a lot of the. the you know, they say the conspiracy theories. A lot of people don't like the idea of some larger entity intervening on their health without their direct consent. So yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of the idea of people not wanting they don't like they don't want fluoridation. Their water fluoridated because they want to be able to s- decide whether they're drinking water yeah. that's fluoridated or not. But the and it's the same thing with like I um. I think it's you put like iodine and salt, like you, so you can avoid like uh, goiters in your neck or something. Like salt was, uh, I don't know the right word, ionized or something, because people had like an iodine deficiency. Like they were noticing in populations of people that there was like an iodine deficiency, and it was leading to some sort of negative health outcomes. So then companies that make salt started infusing the salt with iodine, and then people eat a lot of salt, so they would get their iodine levels back up to a certain amount. Right. But people are going to have a huge issue with that. Even if even if every study ever published, and this is probably not the case, says, let's go back to fluoridation. Every study that's ever published says that fluoridation is safe mm-hmm. and has no health problems. And every study ever published says that iodizing salt is fine. There's still going to be people who feel like the government should not be paternalistic and shouldn't be prescribing population level decisions. Yeah on their people when it comes to their health. It's like telling everybody to exercise, like everybody or telling everybody to stop smoking. Everybody knows that smoking cigarettes is not good for you. The evidence, the strongest evidence that exists in the medical world is that smoking is bad. 
that's the strongest relationship. Smoking kills you. Don't smoke. Like, there's no discrepancy in the literature about that. Mm-hmm. But if you were to if you were to intervene and and ban smoking in a city, there would be huge. The, the whole city would go up in flames, probably. Like, you can't do those types of things. Even like back when we grew up in the area, we grew up like secondhand smoke. Mm-hmm. It, think about. I remember when we were growing up, like people used to smoke in restaurants. People used to smoke in like bars. Like Houses. people would smoke in planes. Even like shortly before we were, <laughs> we yeah. were like that's crazy, right? And yeah. then, but then they and then they started saying like municipalities started saying we have municipal bylaws that you can't smoke in restaurants anymore and you can't smoke on patios anymore and then to make that decision how do you how does a politician like in the Niagara municipality go up and, and make that decision people will rebel about that against that even though they know it's bad they still rebel because they don't want the paternalistic government telling them what to do but the yeah. way the government made that decision which is an interesting example of when which is, is not like water fluoridation this is a different type of example as soon as they revealed that you smoking, secondhand smoking, affects the person beside you and not just yourself, mm-hmm. they were then it was quite easy for politicians, easier for politicians to say, widespread, we're banning smoking inside restaurants. You can't smoke inside restaurants. Any restaurant, it's banned. We don't care if you smoke or you don't smoke or if you don't agree. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a bylaw. You can't do it anymore because you can't. Give somebody else cancer due to your behavior. Exactly. Whereas the fluoridation is not like that because it doesn't matter. Like if they water fluoridate, like it affects you and maybe your children, but it doesn't. You not water fluoridating or not or fluoridating doesn't necessarily have the same effects on other people as secondhand smoke does. So it's a it was kind of a tangent, but it's an interesting way how. The evidence could have been the same in both examples. The evidence could have been strong that fluoridation is safe and that secondhand smoking is bad. But the secondhand smoking example and banning it from restaurants had a political drive behind it that took the science all the way through. The science said this. The political will said this. Lay down the hammer. Ban smoking everywhere. Right. Well, yeah, I need to know more about the fluoridation thing. It's an interesting topic. uh, But like you said, I don't know – I don't know all the studies on it and what – it's just crazy how like Ontario, they break it down like 75% of the province has uh, fluoridated water. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like – yeah, it's like interesting that some municipalities don't because then what you would think that there would be some sort of different effect on like the – Well, exactly. It's a, it's a great opportunity for a study because there would be different effects. So the ish, the thing about – it's an it's kind of like a what you would call like a natural experiment that's already occurring. Like say yeah. say Welland had their water fluoridated and say St. Catharines didn't. Why don't you why don't, and you know that they implemented say say they implemented water fluoridation in St. Catharines in 1995, they didn't do it in 1995 in St. Catharines. You look forward in time and you count how many what's the rate of of uh, cavities in Welland? What's the rate of cavities in St. Catharines? And if the rate of cavities is lower in Welland, which has water fluoridation, then you would think you could make draw the conclusion that water fluoridation is good because it's preventing cavities. Obviously, you'd have to study like side effects of the fluoridation. Like if you notice that, sure, cavities are going down, but like fluorosis or whatever is going up, then that's a whole other thing. But the issue with 
the fundamental issue with studying these types of things and any study in epidemiology is that in order to say that fluoridation, if it reduces cavities in Welland, is good, you have to make sure that the people in Welland aren't doing something else that is re- that is reducing their cavities. Because what if, right. what if at this? Because then, if say people in St. Catharines eat ten times more candy than people in Welland, okay? So say mm-hmm. that's just true. They like, do. It's, it's, it is true. Big, well, we have like say. <laughs> More, yeah, more Tim Hortons, more sugar. But let's, let's just say that's true. Yeah. They eat 10 times more candy in St. Catharines than they do in Welland. And then you implement water fluoridation in Welland and you don't in St. Catharines. And then you find that there's way more cavities in St. Catharines than in Welland. And then Welland has water fluoridation. So then what do you, on a very naive level, what would you conclude? You conclude that water fluoridation is reducing cavities in Welland because people in St. Catharines have way more cavities. When really, it's just that the distribution of other things, the occurrence of other things that cause cavities in Welland and St. Catharines are much different and that everybody in St. Catharines is eating candy and getting a bunch of cavities and then people in Welland don't eat any they far less candy, so they have less cavities. So it's a completely false c- conclusion. So it's a relationship you're observing that is not actually being driven by the exposure you think is it is. You, it's not actually due to the water fluoridation. It's due to something else entirely. The fact that people in St. Catharines eat more candy than people in Welland. Therefore, candy leads to cavities, which is known. And people in St. Catharines have more cavities. Right. And so, so to sum it up for epidemiology, that is – that's like the main that that's what you guys do that is dis- discovering the real causes of things by exactly by comparing exactly. comparing data and and you crunch hardcore numbers in the background like you do all kinds of coding and to like analyze the data it's not just like looking at the sheet of paper and deciding for yourself there's actually there's coding the like statistics exactly so you have the data the epidemiology part is if you if you were to try to draw a line where where it starts and where it ends is epidemiologists essentially they think of how to do a study they devise some sort of plan to do that the plan primarily focuses on how do they collect the data which is essentially like an excel spreadsheet think of data as an excel spreadsheet with a bunch of columns with a bunch of numbers in it but you don't just look at the spreadsheet with your eyes and say oh i see that there's more people Mm-hmm. who have cavities, you actually run statistical models that digest that data and process that data. And then the, 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 the models will tell you this is the association between water fluoridation and dental cavities. And going back to the – and we'll wrap up here with the fundamental problem, at least for the epidemiology part. Mm-hmm. The fundamental problem is that the confounding, the, the, bi- or the, the, the relationship that you may be observing – if you want to say it's due to water fluoridation, you better be pretty sure that the water fluoridation is what is causing or what is preventing the dental caries and that it's not something else. And that something else, that kind of unobserved mechanism or pathway is called confounding. And that's really what you use the statistical models to eliminate. Okay. I want to know the causal effect. You want to get the, the closest thing you can to the causal effect. This causes this mm-hmm. Regardless of everything else, like smoking causes lung cancer regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of gender, regardless of age. It doesn't matter. All these other things don't matter. 
The only what what matters is that smoking causes lung cancer, regardless of everything else. And having that that caveat of this causes that, regardless of everything else. And to in order to make that statement of saying this causes that regardless of everything else you have to use math and statistics that is what that is kind of like the the, the main goal is to have that to have the confidence to say i think this causes this and if you do this if you if you if if fluoridation reduces cavities if you believe that and the evidence shows that then if you introduce fluoridation you will in fact reduce cavities which will in fact better the health of the population. That's kind of what you want to do as an epidemiologist. Cool. Cool. That that begins to to help my understanding of it. It'll be a big journey to continue learning about epidemiology. It's only the beginning. It's only the beginning, man. Scratching the surface. So <laughs> let's uh change gears to over to uh your gaming your gaming commentary life. Uh you recently what what was the event uh, last week that you checked out? So last weekend, uh, it was a competitive gaming or electronic sports event uh, known as DreamHack, which for the second time, uh, it's, it's a, it started in Europe. So in Sweden, they would have these events, these competitive gaming events where people would compete and win money while playing games. And they had one in Montreal last weekend where I live, and I uh, went to check that out. So it was called DreamHack, and it was a competitive gaming esports event cool and so this one did you just go on your own and like you didn't go for because you used to write blogs for what was the organization check exactly so back in high school um essentially you're right so i I didn't go to the event to compete like i wasn't a player of one of the games to competing to win money i was there to watch other people compete to play to to win money it's not all about the winning money. It's just the they compete for the the, the trophy and the glory and everything else, just like any other sport. Yeah. yeah. And the way the the way I got in spectating as opposed to playing was that as I started getting more focused on school, I started playing less and less computer games. And as you know, I played a lot of computer games back in the past, so I play less. And in order to kind of stay in tune with the the scene, the competitive scene that surrounded some of these games, I would write blogs essentially for different teams. So like the the team I used to write for way back in high school, 2005, was Check 6 Gaming. They would have competitive players in, in, a, in a game called Counter-Strike. And I would write blogs about that team, kind of like a TSN or a ESPN would, about their successes and failures in certain matches and that's where it all began for me. So I became more of somebody who spectated, wrote commentaries and blogs about the competitors, and actually watched people play the games as opposed to playing them myself. Right, and and that was started for Counter Strike, or was there other games you were commentating? Well, and interestingly, and you're, you'll be aware of this game because this is where we had a lot of shared hobbies and interests. There was a game, and you'll know, America's Army. So we had our mutual friend Jeremy played this FPS, first-person shooter, yeah. known as America's Army, which had a, a lively competitive scene. So people would organize themselves into teams, and they would have like formal uh, scrimmages and tournaments. And back in the day, it was much smaller scale. You wouldn't really play for money. You would just play for the, the pride or whatever. So that game kind of gave me exposure to the competitive side of playing games where people took it much more seriously. They practiced every day from 5 to 10 p.m. or whatever. 
And then Check 6, the, the organization I initially wrote for, was the biggest, one of the biggest teams in that game. And because I wasn't amazing at the game, I started following that team and kind of admiring their players and then writing about the success or the failures of that team. And then Check 6, immediately after America's Army kind of dried up as a game, people stopped playing it. Counter-Strike, which is a game probably a lot of people are familiar with, it was Counter-Strike 1.6 at the time, was kind of the... At the time, it was the most popular computer game that existed. More people played Counter-Strike 1.6 than any other game. And that game was also a shooting game which had a huge competitive uh, player base. And it was in in Counter-Strike, which I also played with. I played it because you have to play the game a bit in order to... Like anything, I can't Mm -hmm. write about... You can't write about hockey... Well, you... Most people that write about hockey probably played hockey at least when they were a yeah. kid or they play like pickup hockey or they're familiar with the mechanics of the game yeah. or whatever. They're not all former NHL players, but yeah. the same thing with gaming. For me to write about Counter-Strike, I had to play Counter-Strike. So back back in high school, I'd come home and I'd play Counter-Strike with a lot of our mutual friends. And then from there, I started playing less. I was not as competitive because I wasn't playing as much. I wasn't as good. So I kind of shifted into – I kind of acted academically oriented myself within the gaming space, started writing blogs and articles primarily primarily based off of Counter-Strike. Mm-hmm. Now, for America's Army, were you in the clan that we were on the same clan, but did you play a lot of the matches? Like one time we actually got to, uh, in Jeremy and Mage's clan, we actually got to the top spot in the two-versus-two ladder, the official Yeah, ladder. the Remember TWL uh, team, I think it was called TWL Team Warfare League or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah, so Jeremy, Jeremy and Magellan Mage, his like two v two partner, were really good at the game, and you were in their. I guess you were in their clan, whatever. I think yeah, I was like a sub. Like you I, were a sub yeah. if one of them couldn't show up, or maybe they like maybe they played three on three matches or something. I remember, yeah, you guys had a good run in the online league, the TWL league. At that time, I think I was playing a lot of. Uh, I don't know if it was before, but remember Command and Conquer Renegade, that other yeah. FPS game. I was yeah. like pretty. I was really good. That was like my peak of my competitive career in gaming was Command & Conquer Renegade. I was really good at that game, so I was probably focusing a lot on that. But uh, I do remember, yeah, I you guys had a you had a good run in uh, TWL. It's crazy because obviously Jeremy and Mage carried that clan, and but me, it was an interesting time in my gaming career because Red Faction was the only game that I became like godlike at. But uh, America's Army, I actually became pretty good for like a couple months, like when I was playing every day with those guys, and they just trained me to be. Not when we were cheating, by the way, our mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was at the. Uh, that's, you just, you just uh, spoiled their yeah. their legacy. Yeah, yeah. But, but if but, we didn't explain, if people don't know, America's Army was actually created by the U.S. Army as a recruitment tool. Like, so it's completely. It was a game that was completely accurate as far as like the guns and the different details of how everything works. It was crazy. Yeah, that was a. But it's funny you you see you remember that three four month period or whatever where you were good at the game right and like you probably like when you went into clan matches I bet in TWL, which is like an online league that probably had like no no money associated with with it like no one was probably really spectating your matches and stuff yeah you were just playing and it's just you versus like th- two other people like in somewhere they're on they're they're logging in they've been practicing for two weeks before like the adrenaline is like probably pumping like yeah it's probably crazy. Yeah, and uh, it is a weird feeling, and a lot of people don't know this feeling. It's just the gaming generation is very interesting, like, as far as what's going on with our brains and stuff and the hand-eye coordination and the, like, it's... 
we're me and you are from that generation that uh, just the pioneers of the internet and and the whole social media and international gaming like all this is very very new stuff and it's gonna have a like a huge future like people don't really realize the the magnitude of it oh for sure and i i don't know if you i don't i don't know how the facebook feed works where it shows you like different things that are happening on like the top right or whatever but like two days ago or three days ago i saw on the top it's probably tailored to like what interests you have or whatever it said that the the general manager of the Okay, it was an NBA basketball team. I don't remember which team. The general manager of an NBA team, he was quoted in an interview as saying that esports will be bigger than, I think it was the NHL or something. Like, you know how, like, they're, I think, like, the NFL is the biggest league, then, like, baseball, then NBA, and then, uh, then hockey. He said, like, esports, competitive gaming, will be, in terms of, like, the revenue and, like, the TV deals and everything surrounding it, mm-hmm. will be as big as, it'll be, like, a top four major sport by a certain time so people are really starting to acknowledge it like it's come so far from where like we were kind of as you said part of the generation like we grew up with like the first online leagues ever like the, these ever. websites ever like twl on like cal cal invite and like cal low cpl which is, CPL, which is like the uh, professional version of cal like all these leagues we competed in like the first online leagues ever That's and crazy. now We've come to a point where last weekend I go to this dream hack event in Montreal and there are massive stages like with huge screens with hundreds, thousands of seats and people sitting there watching two people up on a stage (laughs) sitting in front of the computer with a huge projection behind them just going absolutely crazy when people get a kill in a game or they pull off a nice strategy or whatever and they're just – going nuts and these people are winning in two days of playing a game they're walking away with any like low-end tournaments now give you fifty thousand for two days of work you win 50 grand and then last weekend as well not at this dreamhack event there was another gaming event known as the international where the first place team playing a game called dota the first place team got nine million dollars that's insane i was split across five people so nine million dollars divided by five I think the international tournament, like, say it runs a week, like, there's, like, group stages and then, like, different uh, different stages you have to compete and you have to, like, qualify for the event. That event, the total prize pot was over $20 million and then first place got $9 million. Like, that is crazy. Like, we, yeah. in, 10 years ago, we're playing in online leagues where, like, zero people are watching. Like, there's no spectators. You're just yeah. playing and it's, like, your personal adrenaline of competing. Yeah. And now there are $20 million tournaments where hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people are watching the game on their computer. They're just watching. They're not yeah. playing. They're just watching the game on Twitch TV. Millions of people at one time from all over the world are watching somebody else run around in a game. And then yeah. those people win. Well, it's like if up. you think about soccer, right? You're watching somebody else. You're, still, you're always watching somebody else play the game. But still, it's a... It's, it's like different, a, yeah. Yeah, it's weirdly similar but different to uh, typical sports. Um what are the other games that have large prize pots like that? Like, what are the top three games that actually pay out money if you're pro at playing them? So, the top three competitive esports titles, and to make them competitive, competitive in esports is just people that get games play competitively. But then to be really like the top echelon where people like watch and it's like a re- like they like uh, in a couple of weeks in Toronto for League of Legends, which is a game. League of Legends, I think overall has the most money associated with playing it. Mm-hmm. So even though that, that that international event that had 20 million, 
that's the most for a single tournament, but there's obviously like multiple tournaments that happen throughout the year and different types of events in different places. League of Legends is the number one uh, game for prize money. And you know the Air Canada Centre where the Maple Leafs play in in downtown Toronto, the Air Canada Centre. They have the League of Legends finals being shown on the screen. No, not no. I think they're actually. I think they're playing the game in the Air Canada Centre. So people are going to fill the Air Canada Centre and watch people play League of Legends. What is that? The number one. Is that sold out or? I don't know. You should Google. See, I didn't. I kind of didn't look into it because I was bummed out. I can't really come back for it because I've been traveling too much. But like, look into that because downtown Toronto, ACC, they like a gaming event is selling out the ACC for people to go watch people play League of Legends. Yeah. League of Legends is the 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 top, probably the where the most prize money is and where the most com- the most structure around the competitive scene exists. Mm-hmm. Then um, Counter now there's actually a new iteration of Counter Strike. So it's not Counter-Strike 1.6, which is where I started back in 2003. It's called Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is essentially the same shooting game, but like updated graphics. It's just the updated version. That game uh, is probably the second with the most, with the the, the largest competitive scene that people watch and play. So you have League of Legends, then Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is a shooting game. League of Legends is not a shooting game. It's like a, a MOBA, like you control... It's like a bird's eye view type of game. Second is Counter Strike. Third is probably that that Dota game, the the international with the international with that huge tournament, mm-hmm. which is a similar game in some respects to League of Legends. So those would be the top three. Yeah. Um, did, was there Rocket League going on at the event that you were at? Uh, yeah, there was. There was competitive Rocket League at the event. Like people were up on stage playing Rocket League, and people go nuts over that game. Like I don't really, I don't play it, so I can't follow it as as closely. But uh, there was like a their pack bleachers of people like screaming over, uh, and I think the first, like there was like six thousand dollars for a weekend of playing Rocket League. That's crazy. Just like it's crazy. So, do you understand the ranking system in Rocket League at all? Because they change it here and there. But uh, like, what level are the guys that you were watching? Do you know? So I don't. I don't know the the ranking specifically to Rocket League, but I can tell you broadly. So this event, this DreamHack event, had one tournament. That was an official high prize pool tournament where like people were had to qualify from around the world and come play. That was for StarCraft II. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of money there. So the people that were playing on the StarCraft II event were the best players in the world. So in the, in the ranking system, they were like literally the top players from their respective regions. So if it's like region locked, like Europeans or North America, for the StarCraft II tournament, they were the best. In the world that were at this at the Montreal. Right. The other games, though, it was they were more informal tournaments. So a lot of the people that were at this Rocket League tournament, for example, are probably from Ontario or Quebec, and they like drove up. It's not like they had to qualify before; they could just show up yeah. with their computer, and then they played on their computer until the final, the finals, where they would play on the stage. So those players are probably like, I don't know the rankings. They're probably really good at the game because like hundreds of people show up to play. But they're they're not like they didn't invite in the best Rocket League players in the world to play for this right. one. Right, that makes sense. Um, so there's no console playing at these comp- it's computer. Well, actually, this one had uh, Super Smash Bros. Super Smash Bros. has a really competitive scene. Like, <laughs> I didn't uh, know that. It's huge. Like Jeremy, for example, he follows the scene like super. Who's our mutual friend? Follows the scene super closely, and like it has a really so on like a main stage. They were playing the GameCube. 
the GameCube version of whatever, I don't know which iteration of Smash Bros. that was. So they play a lot of Smash Bros. and a lot of like Street Fighter. Uh, a lot of the fighting games, which are like the Smash Bros., Street Fighter, that are played primarily on console because you have, the skill involved with those games is actually using the controller in a certain way. Yeah. It's like the physical, tactile way of using the controller. Those games are played competitively on consoles and they are at this event as well. Right. So interesting. Uh, Rocket League I play every day. Play one versus one um, ranked, but I've only ever reached Challenger one, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's like ten down from the top rank, so it's not really anywhere near top. But it's better than average. And how long have you been playing every day? Like since it came uh, out? Yeah, probably since it came out. I mean, there's times when I, when I, uh, there was lulls in my amount of playing, and I don't play for hours on end. Like I'll play. Two or three or four matches usually. Uh huh. It's a very frustrating game. It's a very difficult game. <laughs> well, it's funny because Rocket League on the surface is just like people bouncing into a ball and like cars and like flying off the walls and like shooting yeah. into a net. But like people were losing their minds when people like were watching the game. Yeah. So it's like they have the casual appeal of people like you who play. Maybe maybe we wouldn't call you a casual because you try to you play relatively consistently. But like people who can just play a game or two a day. They don't watch the game competitively, but they play and they're still like invested in their rankings. Yeah. And then you have the people who, who play like regimentally, like fourteen hours a day, and like go yeah. to these tournaments and stuff. It's like a, a spectrum of uh, the competitive experience. Totally, and and there's also a spectrum of skill in that game that a lot of people don't play. They might not understand, but it, like you said, it seems very straightforward. Driving a car into a ball into a net, but the, the because there's rockets involved in like trajectories, it's all about. Um, Physics, obviously. Physics, but, yeah. But it's there's with your controller, you can be the minutia of your movements can be so calculated that I mean that's actually a thing in Rocket League. People say calculated as like a compliment. Like uh, it's just so intricate. Like it's 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 not like at all. It's the complete opposite of say Super Mario Bros. Three, where you're you know you can only go left and right. Up and down jump. Like this game has just it's all about your your hand eye coordination and your like you said, your adrenaline levels. It's like these guys who train and play competitively, they're they're focused on their health, their different you know, I guess the good the the effective players are. They're they're focusing on oh, like any athlete, they're focusing on a wide range of things. Uh you know, their mental health and their their you know, they gotta get enough sleep and stuff like that. It's like it's crazy. And then the next thing, I guess, is virtual reality. I don't know. I'm thinking of getting uh, an HTC Vive as, like, a toy. Yeah, so when I watched your first podcast with Nick. You guys were talking about that, so I Googled it. At first, I thought you were talking about a phone, but then I saw it was, like, the HTC, like, headset thing you put on. Yeah. That's – I'm interested to see where that goes. Because, like, for example, like, when I was at this event this past weekend, there were a bunch of booths set up. And it wasn't, like, the uh, – well, one of them had, like, the full-on, like, VR, like – probably like the HTC Vive or like something, the earlier predecessor. But now there's like people like wear their phones in front of their face and stuff, like which is not really VR, but it's like trying to simulate the yeah. same type of experience. And like gaming is becoming like so immersive in that respect, like where you're actually like you turn your head and you actually look where you're turning, like looking and stuff. It's Yeah. Um, like and they're coming out with uh, a ton of popular games are going to start coming out on these platforms. Like uh, I think the Sky, the next Skyrim's coming out on the Vive. Oh wow! And like you can already play Minecraft on it. Minecraft is crazy. It's like I think it's the most. Per- I think it's the most purchased game next to Tetris. 
Wow. I've never even played Minecraft. That's crazy. I should. You should play it. I always, I mean, for people who haven't played it, you think it's just like assembling blocks and stuff, but it's it's a weird, immersive experience that's really addicting. When we all got it at the same time, a group of our friends, we literally played uh, for a week straight till like, I don't know, like crazy, like till like five in the morning, like six or seven of us. Like everyone <laughs> was just, I don't know, they weren't going to work and stuff. We just like took the week off and we were all... It was insane the amount of hours we put in, but yeah, it's just a simple. It's actually the game was made by accident. Apparently, the guy was trying to make some sort of block-based thing, but then he accidentally coded the the fact that you could break the blocks. Oh, okay. So then you could like get the whole destruction and like manipulating yeah. the environment and stuff. Yep, and now it's a format that a lot of games are adopting now. You know. When we were kids, and still to this day, we always say, like, oh, the best game would be if they combine game X, Y, and Z together. Like, it's all about combining the best aspects of other games to create that next game, right? Look, so there's a zombie survival game out, uh, what's it called? Seven Days to Die. You heard of that one? Uh, yeah, I have, yeah. It's just like those DayZ kind of games, but mixed with Minecraft, you could build you build a shelter, basically, and the zombies come after you, and you got to survive. It's, it's all right, but um, it's just funny that games blatantly rip off other games with things that work you know and it seems so obvious as a game as like a gamer like oh this quality from this game is good and that from that game is good but then like so few games like generally speaking most games that come out that you're hyped for are like not even that good no or after a week like you play for like a a little bit and then you like stop and you wonder like why can't the developers it's like it's like the 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 group of people the player base that are like kids to middle-aged to adult all see these things that could be like pulled in together from other games that would make it so good and then the, the game just lacks it and doesn't execute it properly yep i never wondered why like so many games or they make a good game at the base and then they patch it they update it yep. and they destroy it through the patches like yep. i've seen so many good games i've played in the past the reason i quit the game is not because i don't like the game it's not because i don't have time anymore it's because the developers of the game update it into oblivion and nobody likes it anymore exactly like they just they they try to they remove features that people liked which yeah. makes no sense they add features that are obviously not the features that should be added yeah it's a whole different topic but it's uh well maybe you should use epidemiological studies to figure out what things keep <laughs> what things keep a player invested in a game well and people do that like marketing okay yeah. the, the methods i use in epidemiology are the same like the statistical methods that I use in epidemiology are very similar to the methods that are used in marketing. Right. Like you want to know that this that fluoridation ca- uh, prevents cavities. Marketers want to know if this feature in this game causes you to play the game more, or if this feature causes you to do microtransactions and to buy stuff from the Pokemon shop. Like they want to know does this measured factor does, if by measuring whether people use like do this or don't do this, does that lead them to spend more money or not spend more money? Yeah. It's the same type of stuff. And this is a, it's similar but might maybe slightly different. Like in in general uh, website design, they do like A-B testing. You know what that is? No, I don't actually. It's pretty straightforward. You, It's just um, – so say a banner pops up when you visit a site and the banner is design A, right? So the designer made a graphic with blue text and white background. And so they'll program it so that 50% of the time uh, that graphic displays graphic A and the other 50% of the time randomly it displays uh, – uh, or sorry, I might be explaining it a bit wrong. It displays graphic B. So they, they just measure 
uh, how success, like the success rate of the clicks and the click throughs. Exactly, yeah. And then they, they, so then they take, oh, so to say, okay, graphic A was clicked uh, 70% of the time it was seen. Graphic B was clicked 2%. So they say, graphic B, you're done. Then they take graphic A and they make graphic A1 and graphic A2. And they, they keep breaking that down until they get the best rate for click throughs. Exactly. That's it. And, and if you, and the way, I, I, if I were to visualize how those numbers would be like, you'd have like a, a table with four cells and like you'd have like at the top, you'd have like A, B, graphic A, graphic B, clicks, no clicks. And then you just have like, you could see that more, there's more yeses in the people, there's more clicks in the B banner, less clicks in the A banner. You can calculate things like the odds of somebody clicking the banner given as, you know, odds and the, 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 the risk or like the probability of somebody clicking this banner versus not clicking the banner, all the, all that stuff. Those numbers about clicking or not clicking banners are the same things as cavities or no cavities given fluoridation or no fluoridation. Fluoridation or no fluoridation could be, you know, no fluoridation is A, fluoridation is B, click is cavity, no click is no cavity. It's still like a, a table with four numbers in it. Right. And the association between clicking the banner or getting a cavity, the way you analyze those numbers, if you actually like take it a step further and like look at use models is the exact same thing. The computer doesn't know what the numbers represent. No, it's math. It never does. It Math doesn't know what the number is. You put the context, yeah, the mo- the like the, you put the context to the numbers. The per- a, per- a number with a percent beside it means nothing unless it's a percent of something. It's the same thing with graphic design and which ads are clicked, which banners are clicked, the same thing with epidemiology and whether somebody gets a disease or they don't get a disease. Yep. Pretty interesting, man. Um, so there is tickets for that event in Toronto. I probably won't go because I'll just wait till you're available to go to one of those events with me. Because I don't know anyone else that would really, eh, maybe a couple people, but I would definitely. Well, check I, I was looking into it because I was going to be like, I was going to talk to you. I was going to talk like Jeremy is. He was. I don't know if he still is huge in the League of Legends and like uh, people like Blake and Zach. Like I was like, oh, I would come home and like we could do like a trip up to Toronto or something. But I don't think it's going to work because it's relatively soon, right? It's since. Yeah, the end of the month or early September or something, but I think it would be an eye-opening experience for somebody like you who appreciates, who's played games, who understands there is a competitive scene, who had that like very small taste of it back in America's Army, yep. but you haven't seen like a professional stadium filled with people screaming for the outcome of a match. It's pretty pretty unreal. Yeah, if anybody listening wants to check out, uh, there's a cool documentary on, I think it's on Netflix, about that Karnak guy. Is it Karnak? Car- Carmack? Carmack, yeah. That guy. Uh, there's a documentary just about sort of the rise of his little group in, where is it, Poland that he's from? Or Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, I didn't even know there was a documentary on him. I met him in California back in 2008. Oh, yeah. I, I met him at a gaming event. Yeah, he's very interesting. He's had a very interesting run. Yeah. I so would recommend that as well. I forget what it's called. Uh, if someone just Googles Netflix uh, competitive gaming or esports or something, there's a cool doc on there. Um yeah, well, you want to wrap it up? We'll do another one soon. We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk more gaming stuff. Uh, um, there's so yeah, much. Yeah, this has been awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This has been really good. And uh, you're doing another one tonight, eh, with Alex? I'm doing another one tonight. Hopefully, we'll see. Uh, this one will probably. I don't know when this one will drop either, but uh, it'll it'll drop sooner than later. <laughs> well, I'll keep uh, an eye out for it. I'll just disseminate it to my colleagues yeah do so we'll see uh see if we can get some well i'll put on my, my twitter and stuff and like in the esports scene and like i'll show it to people from school and see if they 
what they think of it and stuff, like the Epi people, the esports people. Totally. I think it's a cool mix of topics. Yeah, and uh, the next one will be super dope, too. It'll be, uh, there's just so much to talk about. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks for doing this, and uh, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. See you later, man. See ya.